Hello, and welcome to the Morning Bell podcast, where we interview authors, discuss writing-related topics, and talk about the writing process as a whole. If you want any more information about the Morning Bell and what it is, look up themorningbell.net. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics that you'd like to see discussed, email the co-editor of the Morning Bell, Kezia Lebanski, at the email address kezia at themorningbell.net. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello, and welcome to the Morning Bell podcast. My name is Joel Martin, and we'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode. As always, I've got my guest host. I was about to say guest host. It's really my guest but my host, co-host. Just, just a guest now, yeah. Just, <laughs> you've been demoted, Luke. Uh, how, how are you going? How is life? Very good. What have you been doing it's in the alive. last week? Oh, gee. I've, I went for a trip through a very vivid four seasons this week. You mean Melbourne? No, actually. More <laughs> vivid than Melbourne. Okay. Um, I was, went for a, a stay in Bright and a little little hotel there and when i woke up the next day it was raining i thought okay it's a bit average so it was a bit of yeah. a bit of a good autumn day like you yep, get yep. here in victoria um took off for a drive up the nearest mountain and halfway up it was it stopped raining and started snowing <laughs> got to the top of the mountain and there was like thick snow everywhere came back down again and the sun was out, and there was like it was a very beautiful spring setting, yeah. and there was like the valley, which is sort of a crisp, cool, sunny valley. And then it was hot. <laughs> got down to the valley, got halfway to Melbourne, and it was just it was hot again. <laughs> wow, where is this place, Bright? Bright is uh, Central Victoria, isn't it? It's north northeast of here. Yeah, yeah. showing my lack of so, knowledge of anything that? Victorian or Australian. They haven't <laughs> named many towns nearby because I'll get them wrong. <laughs> They have a really great water slide that leads into the big water hole that everyone uses in summer, oh, really? which I assume you didn't use if it was <laughs> no, <laughs> not even in the summer part of your four seasons. <laughs> well, it wasn't that long. Okay, it was still, long. it's still Victoria. <laughs> and you've also heard the voice of our guest uh, for this week. Uh, his name is Andrew McDonald, uh, who is a Melbourne writer and author of books for young readers. In 2009, he published his first middle grade novel. The Greatest Blogger in the World and Son of Death is his second novel, a black comedy about grim reaping, family responsibility, and rock and roll. Andrew has a degree in media studies and is a graduate of RMIT's professional writing and editing course. He has worked in bookshops in Melbourne and London. He is a regular presenter on the school circuit and has appeared at various writers' festivals. In 2011, he was co-judge of the Young Adult category of Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Fantastic. So what have you been up to in the last week? The last week I have mostly been writing uh, and right. working, working on writing projects, which has been uh, a luxury. It's always luxury when you have uh, writing time up your yeah. sleeve um, and, and a kind of a joy uh, to just kind of have that time. To just, actually do your job. To actually do my job. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's mostly what I've been doing. It's quite boring because I can't even show you the Word documents that I've been entering words into, but I assure you I have been doing so. We don't even get a sneak peek at what you're working on. Uh, I'm working on a couple of different projects. I'm uh, working on uh, another middle grade novel, uh, which would be number three. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I'm also working on a, a series of books for younger readers as well. Awesome. Um, so two, and I think we might talk about this a little, little bit later yeah. on, but interesting to be working on two different kinds of um, 
forms of children's literature aimed at very different ages. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that sounds like quite the task to me, so I want to find out how you do it. Um, but what have I been doing? Well, I've been doing some writing. Yes, I've been doing some writing. But I don't want to talk about writing just yet. I want to talk about surreal art. Um, now, this is this is not even a topic, but I think it's important because, you know, writers... Um, especially younger writers, uh, when, they, when they're starting out, emerging writers, uh, and they're like, all right, writing. They sit at a desk, they write, um, nine to five. Not really. No, no, right, nobody right. writes nine to <laughs> yeah. five. But they say that. It's like, I'm writing nine to five, not doing anything else, not watching TV, not browsing YouTube videos. It's more like nine to nine, ten, and Pre- then like 4.50 to five. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And they're like, oh, nonstop, all of this stuff. Um, and they see distractions as, as a bad thing, I think, to be ashamed of, right? And... You're right. It it is bad, right? It cuts into your your flow of what you what you got going on. But I think writers, it's it's good to also experience other media and to get really into other media um, in your own work as well. Um, for instance, the reason I say surreal art is because the last couple of weeks have just been me looking for galleries about sur- surreal art and just looking up art, right? Um, mm-hmm. The reason, uh, I can't really diagnose one. One, I'm doing a novella currently, and it has nothing to do with art, but uh, the, the themes explored in it, like the philosophical tone of the actual novella and stuff like that, evokes the emotions of what you get of surreal art. Um, so I'm really into that in the last few weeks. It's probably a fad, it might pass. Um, but it, it's interesting to me because there's always certain fallbacks that I have, like when I want to... Um, get more into the writing or anything like that. I often look at... It's good to look at books about writing, about books about writing books, um, and also just other novels and stuff like that. That's a new genre. But it's also good at, to look at other forms of the media. So that's why I look at um, art, music, and stuff like that. What specifically pulled you into the surreal art this time? Well, it's, it's probably the novella writing. It's probably that. Um, but... Specifically, like about it? yeah. Um, I don't know. I can't put a finger on it. I don't think. Uh, I don't Have think. you discovered any surrealist artists that you need to tell us all about? Tim Cantor. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tim Cantor. It, I, I discovered his art. Um, captivated by his art. It's just beautiful. Um, really, if you guys like that kind of stuff, um, and it's okay if you don't. Uh, but if you do, look him up. Um, just Google his name. Just look up images. Um, uh, that you can get. There's also a book on... He also does poetry as well, which ex- sort of explains um, his art pieces, which is, I think is really interesting and, and nice that he goes into both sides of the of the medium. But that's um, still surrealist poetry, or is it something I, I different? I guess an ex- it's an expression of the art, so I don't mm-hmm. think it's meant to be surreal, um, okay. but mm-hmm. it's an expression of what he's done. Um, and that's, yeah, that's been, like, grabbing me at the moment. And is that... 2D canvas art, or are we talking something a little more experimental? Oh, it's canvas. It's canvas. Yeah. I think uh, I'm I'm a traditionalist for the most part when it comes to art. Like, I love my landscapes, and, you know, I like going to the art gallery and just going to the classic section, looking up, and um, I'm not good on the art terminology, but just traditional style mm-hmm. art. But for some reason, at the moment, it's surreal art. Um, do you guys find that as well? Like, finding other things to sort of give you influences and provoke thought and stuff like that i think it usually comes more to music for myself yeah i've noticed because literally all your tweets have been <laughs> about music oh, that's, that's not a reflection of my writing that's just because i get bored at work okay all right 
Uh, yeah, okay. music for me as well, but also uh, museums. Like I love me a good, yeah. give me a good um, geology museum yep, or yep. like a field that's, you know, not, I'm not familiar with, but I'm yep. just interested enough to, to yep. get into it, be it mm. um, astronomical science or meteorites found in the Western Australian desert that are on display somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just stuff that is like off the traditional scale then, I guess. You totally, say. yeah. I mean, you need to get out in the world. As a writer, you need to get out in the world to, to pollinate yourself, to get among the yep. ideas. To, That's it. You can't mm. be... I mean, one of the problems with um, being a full-time writer, I think, um, is that, I mean, one, it's kind of very hard to do that and make enough money to <laughs> eat food and drink water. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's also, you need to be out in the world pollinating yourself and yeah. learning about the things that you need to write about um, because if you stay in one room with just a, a laptop, yeah. Yeah. then uh, what are you going to be writing about? Probably just yourself yeah. with a laptop, with a fictional laptop. Pretty much. <laughs> a um, magical laptop, I can see it now. A magic, magical laptop that reads you. You know, when I was, when I was younger, and I, I was not very good at typing. Like I forced myself to learn how to touch type and type quickly um, to get my thoughts before I forget them. Um, but when I was, yeah, I used to look for programs, you know, voice recognition programs that could like write for me. Because mm. <laughs> uh, you think that would be too, faster. Yeah. You'd think yeah. that would be faster, but then you end up going, I am going. And it's like, okay. And I, it still doesn't work. And it still doesn't work. It's like, I am Go ring. And it's like, no, it's not a word. You it's not an actual it. word. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you do work on your enunciation, which is important. <laughs> that is good. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, yeah, that's what I've been up to this week. Um, just looking at art and doing some writing, um, doing some stuff on a novella currently that I'm working on. Um, I like novellas at the moment. I'm on this novella craze, uh, writing a couple, um, simply because I like the format because it's not a novel. You know, it, but it's it's long enough for me to express a complete story, right? Um, yeah. And I'm sort of not looking at a structure of a novella. I'm just looking at like the basic the length. story. Yeah, it's yeah. like the length, and then keeping it to that. What um, would you say the length that you'd be aiming for is? Uh, like traditionally, I think the length of a novella is what thirty thousand, forty thousand, twenty to thirty, yeah. twenty to thirty thousand words. Mine is like twenty thousand words. Um, so it's a short novella, really long short story. Um, but then we get into all the gradings of like where it falls and stuff like that. But I think it has the feeling of a novella. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. And it's also interesting to see people's reactions to it, right? It's like they pick up uh, or download um, mm-hmm. the ebook and, and they're like, oh, that's really short. <laughs> I mean, it's like they expected a, a longer piece. I don't know. Yeah, length length can be betraying, and the number of inches between your fingers of a physical book can also be betraying. Because <laughs> yeah. some of John Steinbeck's best books, for example, yeah. are his novellas, yeah. *The Pearl* and um, *The Classic of Mice and Men*. Like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely not lacking any depth whatsoever in either of those titles. But they they'd both be lucky to make ten thousand words, I think. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and um, space between the words and font, <laughs> size of font, and you can sell anything. <laughs> or you could do some like modern stuff and make some pages like have a couple words on them. You know, like. Yeah, I'd uh, be yes, a bit artistic yeah. about it, um, but I haven't tried that yet. Um, but yeah, that's what I've been up to currently. All right, well let's let's move on to the next section of this podcast. What have you guys been watching lately? I have just finished watching season one of Better Call Saul, the spin-off show from Breaking yeah. Bad. Uh, technically, it's very good. It looks very good, the same way that Breaking Bad yeah. kind of was, you know, a, a real master of the visual cinematography. Yeah. Uh, I kind of struggled with it a little bit because I 
just couldn't care all the way through it. Yeah. Um, Breaking Bad always had so many layers to it. It was always about kind of the American dream and, um, you know, it's from from Dugoa to yeah. Evil Goer, uh, Evil Doer. Um, I just, I mean, we we know Soul is pretty bad at the start of this um, season of, yeah. of episodes, and we know where he's going to end up. He's going to end up as the kind of sleazy lawyer yeah. to Walter White, and I. I just kind of struggled to kind of like kind of get engaged with, okay. with that story mm. because it was like, a, and as like a character portrayal, it was very good. And we learned more about Saul and where he came from. And we learned more about um, uh, Mike, one of the kind of um, favorite villains from mm. Breaking Bad uh, is in A Better Call Saul. Um, so, and there are kind of perfectly adequate character sketches of both of those characters. Um, I just couldn't quite understand the point of the thing. Yeah. And that doesn't that, really warrant a full season or something. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, maybe okay, maybe it does. I mean, HBO. Uh, is it HBO? No, Showtime. Maybe. AMC. AMC, of course. Yeah. Uh, how could I forget that AMC, AMC. is Breaking Bad? Voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ashamed. <laughs> um, I'm sure it's done wonders for their uh, bottom dollar. No, but I, no. yeah, it didn't feel like a, a story that was being told because the story was an it, urgent or one. It. Yeah. Um, is it meant to just be the single season or is there more? No, there's another one coming at oh, least. Oh, really? I think they signed up two seasons when they first signed up the show. Interesting. And it was supposed to be a comedy, but it turned out to be a drama, 45-minute so length episode. not comedy or anything like that. Or it's, maybe it's got some elements or no? Uh, I mean, Soul's a kind of uh, yeah. a playful character, yeah. but it's, I would not call it a comedy in Interesting. Anyway. Like a tragic comedy. A tragedy. <laughs> yeah. A comedic tragedy. Yeah. A tragedy, commie tragedy, maybe. <laughs> commie tragedy. Oh, no. <laughs> um, that was interesting because I saw the announcement, I think it was last year or whatever, and it said they're going to do Better Call Saul. My initial reaction was cynicism because I was like, okay, so you're taking your loyal fan base that just adored the hell, especially of the finale of um, Breaking Bad, and you're using them to, you know, Get a little bit of a traction on this on this new thing, milking it for all, milking it for all it's worth. Right. But at the same time, I think AMC is a pretty smart, um, smart company and the way they do things. But do you, do you think like that? You said you're not sure where it fits. Like, what's the point of it? Um, it seemed like a lot of reviewers thought the same thing as well. It's like they didn't know where it. Like, why? Why <laughs> does this exist? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think like from a. From a structural writing point of view, it was hard to work out. I'm sure that they had trouble working out where the stakes should lie in that show. Yeah. So you know that this character dies in Breaking Bad. You know this character is still alive at the end of Breaking Bad. Yeah. So how do you kind of create good enough tension on the screen between characters that you already know the fates of yes. on an episode-by-episode basis? Without just creating new characters like all the time. Right, right. And, yeah. and in that scenario, it's often very hard to create new characters that people care about. Yeah. Engagement, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Which is why uh, spin-offs so often kind of fail and just don't get the same engagement that the the um, uh, flagship show has. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Interesting. But I'm not, I wouldn't say that um, the AMC creators or the Breaking Bad creators were milking the Breaking yeah. Bad product either. Like, I think that they genuinely had stories to tell yeah. about Saul. So they're just not as captivating a story as um, the story of Breaking Bad and Walter White, I think. Interesting. Anything else you've been up to? Watch it. Uh, I've been just uh, after I watched Better Call Saul. I started season two of The Bridge, the Scandi um, crime drama, mm-hmm. um, which is um, very atmospheric and yeah. makes me want to live in a beautiful Danish apartment uh, <laughs> oh, it's, and investigate um, crime. That's the dream, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit like um, uh, what is it? Uh, Outlander, isn't it? No, no, it's a Wallander. That's yes, right. Yes. I never got around to that, and I always wanted to because um, I think that. That type, that filmmaking is just like 
very much my thing. Absolutely. And shows like The Bridge and uh, and The Killing really drew on that and kind of took them to the next level. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they're... They were big successes when they aired in um, the UK on BBC as well. Yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. what made them really take off, I think, in, yep. the, in the English-speaking world anyway. Interesting. Great. Luke, what, what have you been watching? Well, I'm, I'm in Viewing. the Northern European section too. I've watched... I don't know if you've heard of The Secret of Kells. It's uh, no. fairly... No. What is it? Two or three? Two or three or four years old now. Um, it's a cartoon... Sort of a combination of anime and medieval illumination the art style for that movie. It's a cartoon base um, directed by Tom Moore, an Irish director. Uh-huh. Um, the, so the original one was song of the song of the, sorry, the secret of Kells, um, mm-hmm. a story about a, a child in a monastery in Ireland when it's attacked by Vikings. They do some really beautiful sort of takes on Irish um, folklore, like everything, in the forest is all sort of Irish folk, and then in the monastery it's all very um, Christianized, and it's mm. sort of the contrast between the Christianized and the Irish stuff, and then the Norwegian attackers as well. So, um, yeah, but it's all done in this very, um, as I said, it's a combination of anime and medieval illumination. And I say that because um, every all the land, everything except the people, is done in shapes, like very very distinct shapes. So if you've got a if you've got a forest or trees, they're all very, very sort of triangular. Um, so common and shapes. And there's a lot of, yeah. lot of very, very, very square pieces used for um, buildings. It's very, mm. very arty. Yeah. It's not, um, it's not as, um, what do you call it, fine detail as artistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's and like, it's very geometric. Yes. Yeah, it does, actually, geometric. from the description. Um, yeah. I would say it's really well. It's very. It's not like that makes it a clunky film or anything. No, everything's really, really well done. Yeah. It's very smooth. So yes, everything's shaped. So as soon as it moves, it's. I mean, it's not. Not um, it's not clunky or anything by anything. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's not like some of the modern cartoons, anyways. Mm-hmm. It sounds um, exciting. Was, yeah. it, was it exciting to watch? It was very, very good. Yes, I I really liked it. Um, the second one was the Song of the Sea or Song of the Sea. I had to go through a bit of trouble because um iTunes doesn't have it in the Australian store, but I got it anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one was different because it was a modern setting. It's a modern setting, and it's still using all the Irish, Celtic folklore elements because it's um, that's what this this director's definitely done a good job on. Mm. Um, so it's a story of this child who I would not spoil the thing. I mean, I know we're we're doing a podcast here, but I better not give all the spoilers <laughs> in case we lose people's interest. Um, yeah. But so it's the story of this boy who's lost his mother at a very early age, and yeah. the her her disappearance was really an anomaly, and it wasn't. You can't really tell what's happened to her, mm. but it's a very traumatic thing for him, anyways. And um, it opens the door for magical elements to come into the story, Interesting. and. Um, so he's he's going through this trauma the whole time and getting over that and everything around him is very magical and interesting and beautiful in the way that this uh, Tom Moore directs it and oh, it, was, it was really good <laughs> sounds like very atmospheric <laughs> very very atmospheric it does yeah. it sounds it's a little bit like the work of are you familiar with uh, Alan Garner the uh, oh, yeah. the English uh, or maybe he's Welsh I can't I remember say, uh, yeah. he's, he's an author of uh, of uh, YA books or yep. he 
I think he's still alive, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, The Owl Service uh, is probably one of his bigger books and mm-hmm. kind of uses a lot of the um, Celtish and um, and Welsh mythology mm-hmm. um, as the kind of the backdrop, the atmospheric backdrop, yeah. backdrop yeah. if you like, um, and kind of has like a, a menacing side to it as well. Did this, the mythology of this, did it have a kind of menacing side to it? Certainly the first one did. The second one had less, so The Secret of Kells had a lot more menacing uh, mythology behind it, whereas um, The Song of the Sea was probably less menacing and more more story sort of condensed with emotion of the character rather than rather than um, the menacing mythology, mm-hmm. which is slightly to its slightly to its discredit because Celtic mythology is very dark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have to tame it down to be acceptable. <laughs> but it's a kid's story, so yeah, yeah, exactly. It definitely did it well. Yeah. I'm not saying it's bad. Yeah. But um, it's a lot tamer than Celtic mythology is usually. Yeah, it gets a bit dark. I think yeah. all mythology, to a certain extent, has darker sides to it, and then we we brighten it up a little mm. when we want to talk about Disneyify it. <laughs> Disneyify it, yeah, oh. pretty much. <laughs> but um, talking about Disneyifying, and I'll get onto mine soon. But Disney Brave, um, I have to watch it still. I know I haven't <laughs> watched it, uh, but that was an animated movie done by. Disney, I think. Yeah, Pixar, it was definitely Pixar it was, Disney. Is it yeah. Pixar, Pixar Disney? Yeah. Um, and which, what do you think of that? I know you have some opinions. Brave, was fantastic. Okay, it's very good. I can't say that it was strictly um, adhering to all the um, mythology elements. Yeah, yeah, in Scotland or anything, but it was definitely a very good film. Interesting. Was um, that Ireland? It was Scotland. Oh, okay. Scottish tribes. Interesting. Yep. I didn't know that. Um, or wearing their kilts, <laughs> and they got their little. Uh, was it bagpipe? No, it wasn't. It was definitely bagpipe music. Interesting. It's very nice. I thought, very it was the, I thought it was the first unremarkable Pixar film. Like, it was good. Really? It was like three <laughs> oh, there stars. you go. So, what, like, what did fine. you like about it? No, nothing. I liked everything about oh, it. Okay. I just didn't like It was the first Pixar film that came along that I didn't love. Oh. And they'd had okay. such a good run for such a long time. Yeah. And Brave yeah. was, was perfectly fine. But um, just in that way that it doesn't like. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah. It didn't win my heart the way every other film had won my heart. Mm. I, I thought that the, the, the mother daughter relationship was a little. A little forced, forced. maybe. Um, yeah, which is like, which is a silly criticism, really, because it's, <laughs> it was a perfectly good film. It yeah. just wasn't uh, a killer film. Interesting. Yeah, for me, it was mostly the setting. I think because I'm really big on the medieval fantasy settings, and that mm. was probably one of the first ones they did well. Yeah, uh, Tangled was good, definitely very good, but um, but it caught you up. Like, but this one caught yeah. me because of all. Well, I mean, Celtic and Scottish. Have very they're very similar settings, yeah. So it really captured me with that. So that that's probably my bias then. <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, we'll hopefully in a few weeks we'll have a guest that can talk a lot about Celtic mythologies and not oh. giving anything away. Um, but uh, <laughs> for me, um, before we wrap up the section, is uh, we were we me um, I watched um, the Water Diviner. Uh, I know this is very like topical because it was Gallipoli um, the the service and. Our remembrance, um, was it two days ago, I think? Or two days ago. Two Over days. the weekend. Over yeah. the weekend, yeah. Um, but I watched this a few weeks ago. The only reason I didn't talk about that is because I just forgot and I, I wanted to. Um, but it is Russell Crowe's uh, directorial debut, I think. Um, I'm pretty sure about that. And I believe he knocked it out of the park. I think um, it was a really good film um, that doesn't just talk about... Um, the context of Gallipoli and doesn't just talk about the anguish of a father, but also like extends beyond that. Uh, it shows um, it 
sort of takes a little bit of a side when it comes to the Greek and Turkish uh, relationship and the ownership uh, side of things, and um, it plays into that a lot more. And I, I thought um, it was a very good film. Uh, the first scene, I think, um, not giving anything away, it was just the scene of him in the well and just like digging the well uh, to begin with him fighting water is just a, a very good scene. Um, I think it was beautifully shot. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, mythological tropes, I think, in that film uh, that's used as well, like uh, mm-hmm. certain aspects, um, the hero's journey and things like that. You can really identify in that story because it does it very well. Um, it doesn't do it in a way that, like, oh, I can see that coming. But It and um, it doesn't enter cliched land? No, I don't think so. I, I think it, in the end it's still like... How can you say it's a happy story? But like in the end, it has. Um, <laughs> for the readers that thought, why was there a cut in this recording? It's because there was a spoiler, and I decided to cut it out. So just a heads up. <laughs> um, but I thought it was a really good film. I think it was uh, well done, um, and definitely a film to look out for. Uh, should you see it and mm. pick it up? But uh, shall we move it along um, to the topic? And Andrew, why don't you introduce the topic and? Well, I thought we could uh, have a, a chat about um, writing for, for young readers, yeah. which uh, encompasses so many different kinds of age groups and mm-hmm. types of people. And yep. um, I mean, writing, I, I write uh, middle grade novels, yeah. um, novels mm-hmm. for children from eight through to kind of 12, 13 yep. in some cases. Um, but writing for children is from from picture books all the way through to, to young adult mm-hmm. books, which is an incredibly um, varied yeah. <laughs> type of um, collection of books. Yeah, extremely yeah. diverse, yeah. Yeah, what, like, on your own history, like, what you have done in yourself, like, what made you, like, get into it to begin with? Like, what prompted you to go, like, yep, that's my... That's my age group. That's what I can write for. That's what I like to write for. Uh, well, I guess it goes all the way back to when I was uh, young myself, when I was yeah. kind of between eight and twelve myself, and writing was and reading was two of my favorite things. Yeah, uh, along with being a football player. That yeah, was yeah. My my aim in life is either to be a football player <laughs> or a writer. Uh, <laughs> uh, and not both. No, you, not writing you, about you, football. No, you've, no? Re- you've really either got to work on your pecs or work on your uh, <laughs> your handwriting. You can't do both. Pens Fair or enough. pecs. Pens yeah. or pecs. <laughs> um, One of them is more profitable, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny you mentioned that. <laughs> I think it's pretty hard to be uh, a writer and a football player. Uh, but um, I I really loved writing. I loved. Um, writing stories and reading stories. I yeah. loved um, ripping off stories. Um, yeah. I went through that phase that we all go through when we were younger, either <laughs> illustrating or writing, and you kind of get inspired by The Simpsons and every kind of third character that you draw looks just like Homer. Yeah, yeah. Go through all that kind of stage of um, of echoing the, um, the the stuff that you love yeah. and, um, and just have like really kind of clear and vivid memories of being that age, being kind of like upper primary aged kid where you're kind yeah. of like, you know, the world is kind of like kind of shining into your eyes at kind of like a renewed intensity every yep. day. Yeah. Um, and hormones haven't kicked in, so there's no like kind of, you know, sex stuff to think about yeah, yet. Yeah. You can just kind of think uh, a little bit critically um, um, about the world and it's a, it's a cool time to be alive. Yeah. Um, so I had a good time then um, and then I didn't read for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, I went to high school and you read set texts yeah, and you yeah. don't want to read much else sort of other than that. Ticket's turn, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then uni, and you study hard, and you get out of uni, um, 
And I got out of uni with a journalism degree and said, well, I don't want to do journalism. What should I do now? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the answer to that was to enroll uh, in uh, RMIT's professional writing and editing course. Right. Yep. Um, yep. We know some people from there, actually, a few former teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a lot of Melbourne writers uh, and, and editors and, and yeah, people are publishing in Melbourne who have come through that course yep. and get involved still now. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm lucky to be enough, uh, lucky to be among the alumni from the RMIT course, yeah. uh, and I was taught by the wonderful Claire Renner, who um, yep. was at the time teaching children's and young adult writing, mm-hmm. um, and it really just opened my eyes to like how awesome this category or yep. these categories of writing can be and yep. are. Um, you yeah. I, and I, I say category very um, purposely as well. They're not. Young adult writing is not a genre. Writing for children is not a genre. There are genres within children's literature, mm-hmm. um, but these are categories that we're, yep. we're working within. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have anything from kind of kind of high fantasy uh, like Ursula Le Guin and Alan Garner yep. um, through to kind of very kind of realist stories, um, which uh, tend to dominate um, YA at the moment, especially with the John Green effect. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um with writing for children, like that's interesting to me because I had a very different sort of writing journey, if you wish. Um, because I guess when I was younger, there was a there was a gap um, where, like, for me, I skipped something. <laughs> you know, I moved to something because uh, it was about the age of what is it, like eight or nine, and then uh, I was reading, you know, just general stuff and like children's books and things like that. Um, uh, and fairy tales and things like that when I was younger. And then it skipped. And then I didn't read anything for a couple of years. And I went, bam, on the Count of Monte Cristo, Ivanhoe, and all this kind of stuff. And then I just, like, missed. Like, young adult fiction was just, like, a non-thing for me. Um, and not at all uh, got into that kind of scene. So for that aspect, I know nothing about the actual genre or the writing of it. Um, uh, there's one author that I do know, and that's only because I went back uh and I wanted to just, I was like, I need to learn about these people and things like that. Uh, and I picked up, I think his name was John Flanagan. Um, oh, yes, The Ranger's Apprentice. That's the one. Yeah. And I picked it up and I read it and I thought, okay, um, these these stories are, for me anyway, they follow a set sort of idea of like what you expect the story to be. Um, there's no like subversion of your expectation or anything like that. Um, it just... <laughs> And then I realized, like, well, wait, what am I doing? Am I criticizing a children's author for writing good stories that I consider to be simple, like, or like simply told? Like, what is your opinion on that? Like, when you write for kids, and this is probably a common uh, mistake people make, it's like writing for kids. And we talked about this with Michael, uh, Michael Pryor. Writing for kids is easy. You know, it's like, is it really that easy? Because you're having to tailor it for that audience. Like, what did they expect? Um, of it right and it's hard because the audience at that age maybe aren't familiar with all the tropes yeah, and cliches exactly. that you're talking about yep. um coming across um so kind of by subverting uh, uh, something that a genre does a lot of yeah. the kid might be reading that that kind of thing for the first time so they wouldn't even know that it's a subversion right. yeah um which is why satire um kind of isn't you don't see a whole lot of yeah. satire in, in young adult and children's yep. fiction for that reason, especially children's fiction. Yep. Um, I was looking through my local library last night and the only real kind of satirical children's mm-hmm. novel I saw was um, Diary of a Vampire. No, Diary of a Wimpy Vampire. I've heard of it, Which is yes. the satire of the Diary of the, of the Wimpy Kid yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. Um, but apart from that, 
satire is not really a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to remember that, like, kids uh, don't, like, there's a certain age, and I can't remember what it is, but, it's, like, sarcasm, for example, doesn't kick in until, like, a very certain yeah. kind of time of life. Different for different um, yeah, kids. Exactly, yeah. But you can't kind of depend on kind of all the kind of things that a, an adult is going to bring come, yeah. come to a book with. Kids okay. are going to bring a whole lot of uh, different life experiences and knowledge of the world to uh-huh. their reading times. Um, yeah. But... But it's interesting that you talked about, I mean, you, you say that you missed kind of the, the YA craze yeah. and you missed your time of kind of having that intense, but I don't think you did miss that time yeah. because it sounds f- from like reading The Count of Monte Cristo and kind of like doing nothing but kind of like having your head buried in a book for those yeah. kind of, that bracket of years there that you like went through that phase. It's just that you didn't read books that have necessarily been designated. I was seeing it with those eyes. With yeah. The, yeah. Okay. I yeah. see what you're saying. Yeah, but yeah. I, but I, think, I, I think that, and I think that's like an interesting way to think about children's literature to look at the reader rather than like the category of books available yeah, um, yeah. and to think about what the readers are like because everyone well uh, most kids I think go through that similar yeah. stage where they're just like ob- like obsessed with books and are easily yeah. absorbed and yeah. they open a book and they don't really look up at you again until that book is finished yeah, pretty much and that's a beautiful time <laughs> yeah. they're under the covers with a torch yeah, and a book. Yeah. <laughs> reading great stuff I know it's so fantastic when you, when you say that how how common I mean I remember Michael Pryor was mentioning something about this on on the first of April. Uh, he was saying that kids are a lot more discerning with books. Like they're actually, if they don't like something, they'll just give up on it easily. Is that like yeah? A, was that something you're noticing a lot? Or? Adults did that too. <clears throat> uh, yes, <laughs> yes. But I remember him saying that it's a lot more, um, a lot harder to yes. catch yep. a kid yep. because they've well, especially with all the choices of books now. But but um, it's a lot harder to catch kids. You, you find that. I think it's just something to be mindful of that mm-hmm. there, there, that kids do have so many options these yeah. days. There are so many books out there. The market really is flooded with kind of literature at every level, yeah. uh, and they they have many choices. So you do need to be aware, and you, you do think about that, especially while you're writing those kind of opening few chapters. And yeah. publishers, uh, publishers of books for younger readers, are very aware of needing to capture attentions mm-hmm. uh, in the first couple of chapters or the first you know two thousand words of a book. Say yeah. even mm-hmm. the first page page of a book is is super important. Um, but it's which is not to say that um, we should. Like be taking that into account completely because mm. I think that just because a kid picks up a book, reads the first page and puts it down because they're not interested, like that could actually be for a number of reasons. I know when I was young, I had a number of books that I would pick up. I would read the first page and I just didn't really understand it or I wasn't into it. And I put it down and I pick that book up again in a year's time or in two years time. Yeah. And I had a number of books that I just didn't, and I, I was like, and I'd pick them up and I wonder, I wonder if I'm old enough to understand this yet. And like, yeah. you would finally get to like the age of 40 and you'd be like, ah, now I understand what The Outsiders is all about <laughs> and I can like actually make it all the way through to the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did, and so I think that kids are like really great self-sensors. Yeah. They'll, they'll either read something which has got mm-hmm. some sexual violence in there that yeah. maybe we don't want them to see and yeah, it'll yeah. just go completely over their heads. Or if they see something or read something that's too scary or too intense or kind of psychologically disturbing for them, they'll mm-hmm. put it down. Yeah. Yeah. And the same goes if they just don't comprehend it. They'll put it down. Yeah. Um, and they might come back to it later if they're interested. Um, because, yeah, I don't know, it's this weird thing when you're when you're a kid. Yeah. I'm not sure whether you guys remember this, where you, like, you're aware that you're growing up and that what doesn't make sense today might make sense in yeah. years' time. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think that, yeah, kids have a lot of different things going on. Yeah. Um, in, in that kind of like mindset when it comes to, to reading. Yeah. I don't think I remember having that sense myself. Mm. I was more just jumping into the fantasy and just keep going through these fantasy <laughs> books, like plowing through the whole <laughs> lot of them. And just imagining myself there writing little spin-offs and all that sort of thing. So I don't, I 
don't know if I remember having that sort of idea that maybe yeah. I'll understand in the future. I kind of just didn't care. I was like, oh, I'll read the next one. Do you, do you remember reading the first pages of a book and saying, no, this is no good for me and, and chucking it away? Uh, only if it was non-fiction. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I never came back to it. <laughs> um, that or if it was set for school and school alone and I was like, ah, okay. Because I usually sat there and thought, well, if it's for school, that means they think I'm supposed to get yeah. something out of it, so I don't care. Yeah, exactly. So yep. I'll just go and read this other book, which I got a whole series of that I really like, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think that one of the things that you can always look at in successful children's literature yep. and kind of put a finger on uh, as a reason as to why it's been successful or why mm. it's really popular is that it doesn't condescend to the, the readership to, to kids. And, and how do you do that exactly? Well, I don't think you can... I, I think that it's... I think it's probably something that you can learn, but I think okay. it's something that um, is just natural to a lot of people. Okay. And books like like the Diary of the Wimpy Kid books, mm-hmm. they don't condescend at all. They're they're basically just reflecting yeah. um, middle middle school, primary school experiences back to kids, yeah. um, exactly as they kind of happen to kids. Um, so they're really familiar, and there's no condescension there. Yeah, but, um, yeah it, it's it's something that I'm always mindful when I'm when I'm yeah. writing, not condescending to kids. Which so so when I wanted to write Son of Death, which was yeah. going to be a book about um, a kid called Sod who was a Grim Reaper, um, and this was kind of a very different Grim Reaper yeah, world. Yeah. Everything's modern. There are no scythes yep, in the kind yep, of yep. cliched sense. Um, I, I, w- I was aware that I shouldn't tone it down too much because I didn't want to condescend to kids who yeah. were. Um, old enough and analytical enough to like understand what, what death was mm-hmm. and um, the kind of things that surround death yeah. uh, in the Western world, especially. Right. Okay. Um, and just kind of like, and, and maybe you get to the end of a manuscript and you say, well, that, that violence is kind of pointless or like, you know, that, that, that scene has no place there because it doesn't actually do anything within the larger whole mm-hmm. of the novel. Yeah. Um, but, but, they were for structural reasons uh, as opposed to kind of like censoring yourself because you're being, because you're worrying too much about the readership. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, it was, I was, I was looking at it, Son of Death. Um, and like you said, it, dealing with a topic that um, usually you have a class on <laughs> or like you have several classes on, like explaining the ideas and the concepts, philosophies and everything goes into it. But like, how do you do that in a book? Like, do you keep it light enough for people to just skim through? Or do you do you make it so that at the end of the book, they have a pretty good concept of what, what you're talking about, not just in the story? Like, what what what's the balance that you struck when you're writing this? Were you writing it in a way? I guess I'm asking to be like educational within a you know an interesting premise, and not saying that like I'm writing an educational book and I'm going to put a story on it, but just were you seeking to educate people or kids in that regard? Uh, I I think it's a I think it's always problematic to write a book with the intent yeah. to educate people about yeah. a certain topic yeah. and kind of yeah. make their mind think a particular way. Yeah. I think what, what I've tried to do in Son of Death, and you, you certainly come to it with like kind mm-hmm. of ideas yourself. And yeah. with both um, my first book, The Greatest Blogger in the World, and Son of Death, both of those books are taking topics that I didn't think were being discussed enough in children's literature and like I think yeah, they definitely. could, could yeah. kind of be approached more um, with young readers. Um, so blogging and kind of like the online world yep. and the greatest blogger in the world and then kind of um, issues around deaths, like specifically um, biological and yeah. objective issues um, around death and the death industry um, in yeah. Son of Death. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and I... I uh, so with Son of Death, I wanted to talk about yeah. what happens when you die, and and I wanted to talk about it without getting into issues of grief and loss, mm-hmm. which 
usually when kind of we have okay. to deal with these things, it's because someone very close to us has died, or um, next door neighbor's grandparent has died, or like when we when we truly have a discussion about death, it's because it's suddenly arrived on our doorstep. Um, yeah. And I wanted to talk about death in a kind of very objective look. What happens when a body um, is a body and yeah. starts decomposing? And this is right. this is natural. This is science. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Kind of the flesh will start to be eaten by worms in the ground. Yeah. yeah. But like, let's not look away from that just because it's kind of weird and makes us feel uncomfortable. Let's look at it. And then maybe when death does rock up on our doorstep further down the line, we will have kind of a more complete picture of, yeah. of okay. like death, obviously, but also kind of like the meaningfulness of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's educational by accident um, rather than on purpose. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the like when I first had the idea for the book and like, Primarily, I wanted to tell a fun story a about yep. a Grim Reaper, yep. and that's yep. that's like the number one thing that I'm trying to do in there. There's a character called Sod, um, which mm. stands for Son of Death. Obviously, yep. he doesn't know that at the start of the book. Yep. He mm. discovers that his family are Grim Reapers, yep. um, and he kind of says, "No, you're not," but possibly you're all mass murderers. In which case, I'm getting the hell out of here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they say, "No, no. Look, and now that you know, we need to induct you, and you need to Grim Reap a new person every day for the rest of your life." Yeah. Um, and that's kind of heavy stuff for him to yeah, deal yeah, with. Yeah. Um, and he kind of goes on adventures, kind of um, there's a missing corpse at one point. He learns about um, what happens to a body after it goes into a funeral home, How, mm. what the embalming process is all about, which is right, kind of okay. a very mysterious yeah, thing that yeah. most adults don't know kind of what's really involved yeah. um, in. And uh, talking about all that kind of stuff was... I wanted to talk about it, but I wanted to do it in a kind of an yeah. action adventure way. Kind yeah. of, there's a number yeah. of mysteries in the book. Um, we get into mortality more than like actual death, yeah. actually. Um, uh, and I, yeah, we don't get into traditional zombie land, but we yeah. do get into zombie <laughs> vigil land. Um, and and yeah, I do pose the question of what would happen if maybe we could just like put off death forever and like still live in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yep. And they'd get terribly scratched up. To be honest, yeah. they would not. They would not um, be looking good in like two or three hundred <laughs> years' time. It's not like we we not shouldn't actually be wishing for immortality. It's not a good thing to wish for. <laughs> it's not really that good. Yeah. Um, no. So they're all fun. They're really, really fun. Or I thought they yeah. would be fun things to write about. So I, I went with them and I, I grabbed them. And there was lots of lots of gore to talk about as well. <laughs> um, and that's something that you kind of often see in kids' books. And, yeah. and kids love a bit of gore. They. The, the funny thing is that when you go in. Um, into a school and you see what kids are writing in their creative writing <laughs> lessons, they're writing much more messed up stuff than yeah. what's in Son of Death. Um, there's blood everywhere. There's kind of people being stabbed in their head. There's, um, it's incredible. They're, and so like kind of death is on their minds, you know, on a conscious or unconscious, unconscious level. Don't quite yeah. get it maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they're expressing it in yeah the only way they kind of like, it's just, it's just kind of coming out. They're not, they're not even thinking about how they're yeah, expressing yeah. it. It's just coming out. So I, I was pretty comfortable about writing a book about death, given mm-hmm. that um, at that age, it's part of their life. It's, it's coming out in different ways, and they're going to write much gorier stuff than I ever am. <laughs> with the um, with the age group, uh, for clarification, it's like how old do you think is the readers of Son of Death? Uh, I'm always a little reluctant to put actual ages okay. on it because kids are so different. Um, I, I would give it to a, a really advanced reader if they were, um, say, uh, eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe seven if they were quite advanced and yeah. and uh, adept, mm-hmm. um, all the way through to kind of twelve, thirteen, yep. Um, yep. 
and the greatest blogger in the world is maybe for like a slightly younger yeah. um, readership. But um, the publishing industry would call Son of Death a high-low book, which is high concept mm-hmm. um, with a uh, kind of low um, level of or like a low accessibility, yeah. uh, high accessibility, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's the the prose is not complicated. It's it's really accessible. Um, the concepts are also high. Um, so. Yeah, there's there's lots in there. You don't have to be the greatest reader yeah. in the world to read um, either of those books. Yeah, Luke, uh, uh, any hang comments? On a second. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had a couple of sort of questions or mini topics, whatever you want to call them. Mm. Um, the first one came to mind was your your two books. None of neither of them are in a series, are they? They're both standalone. That's correct. Um, what do you think of the importance of series? Because I know for myself, when I was that age, I was if I saw a standalone book, I generally veered away and went straight into a massive series and read the whole thing. So w- what do you think of that sort of importance for kids? Like continuity of, of heroes yeah, con- yeah, and stories and worlds. Or even yeah, just yeah. the world that they're yeah. reading. Is it- yeah, I, I think that it's up to the individual reader. Yeah. I think that there's always going to be kids who want standalone books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but like, I, I don't know. I, I think this is like just a, a form thing that we kind of get all caught up in mm. as adults. So when I was a kid, I, I'd go to the local library. I'd always be looking at the um, the little visual stickers that you would get alongside the kind of like yeah, library yeah, yeah. Uh, shelf, uh, which would have like a little ghost if it was a spooky story yeah. or a little like jungle man <laughs> if it was an action adventure story um, or like a little pet if it was like a story about animals. Yeah. And that was kind of how I selected the books that I wanted. So I would like go for the humor books and I'll go for the spooky story yeah um from you know between seven and eight or whenever i was having my yeah. spooky story phase um and I, that's how i would work out what i wanted to mm-hmm. read and it didn't matter if it was stand or if this and this is for me and i understand that everyone's experience is always so subjective yeah um i that's how i selected my books and sometimes it would be a series i remember i read all of duncan ball's ghost in the goggle box series <laughs> um when i was going through my spooky phase yeah, yeah. um but i also read heaps of standalone books and um, I mean, series are very popular, especially in uh, young adult books and in some middle grade books as well. Per, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, Harry Potter is the, the obvious one, but Percy Jackson is a middle grade series yep. and that's yep. super popular. Yeah. Very popular. Um, yeah. It's it's easier for, for writers and, and publishers um, if they can kind of get a, a series going that people like, that readers will buy. It is easier for them to put out more books in that series because it's um, a concept that readers already um, one, like, and two, are, are interested enough yeah. to like buy more of. So it's, it's brand kind of like awareness little, as well. Like yeah. Hardy Boys, um, yeah. Biggles, Nancy Drew, yeah. they're huge series. Like, what is it, 300, 400? Oh, yeah, those ones just never ended Hardy because, yeah. And yeah, and t- <laughs> kids totally do respond to that kind of series yeah. branding as well. I, I brought in a couple of books tonight. From Three investigators. That was the next thing I was going to oh, say. Actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. That brings back memories. <laughs> so I brought in some of my my own um, books from my own children's literature yeah. collection, um, and I, I brought in Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators in the Mystery of the Talking Skull, which is published in let me look here, nineteen seventy nineteen seventy. Okay, um, and they were a series which. Um, some people have heard of them and yeah. most people haven't, but uh, they were floating around secondhand bookshops a lot when I was young. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, yes, you would have known. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they, they're terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've read them as an adult. They're badly written. Oh, yeah. Um, they're very simplistic. Yeah. Their teenagers are way too old to be doing such adult <laughs> things. I know. <laughs> um, 
and, and yeah, the whole thing kind of has like a Scooby Doo thing just, where yeah. they reveal a villain at the end, and the villain says, "You pesky kids, I would have got away with yeah, it." Yeah, but, exactly. Um, so like, there's like a whole lot of mismatches going on there. Um, but as a kid, I loved them, and I, I totally started reading all the Alfred Hitchcock Presents the Three Investigators books because I read one and I loved them, so I kept reading them. Um, And especially for a series like that where they would have had different authors ghostwriting the books, um, that was a really great way for both me as a reader to keep reading books that I wanted to read and for the publishers to continue to get writing that they were were publishing into my hands. Um, And and it just kind of goes to show like what... You know how hard it is. I, I think that it's hard now for for adults, for me even, to like look back at look at children's literature and say that's a book the kids are actually going to like. Because I look this, at this book and I, you know, if I didn't have my personal connection to it, I'd say no way is a kid going to be interested in that. But I just, I just loved mysteries. Like any book when yep. I was younger that had the word mystery like the in Hardy the Boys title, yeah, totally, yeah. totally Hardy Boys yeah. and um, and you know Scooby Doo I mentioned yep. before, and I read Agatha Christie books. Yep. Yep. I remember when I was in my early teenage years, um, just before I kind of stopped reading for 10 years, um, I re- was reading Patricia Cornwell's um, crime novels. Like right. My mum would buy them, yeah, read yeah. them, and then like give them to me. And then kind of 13-year-old me would like yeah. then read, you know, the next Patricia yeah, Cornwell case yeah. Garpetta book. Um, because, yeah, we, because I, yeah, mysteries were what I loved. And I really did like start from that kind of time at the library that I like picked out the little visual clue that said mysteries from the like spine of each book mm. and read through all those all the way through to like um, the crime novels that my mum was handing yeah. down. And you forget the kids kind of work kind of a long genre yeah. ways like that. But Luke, perhaps you haven't forgotten because you have, um, from what it sounds like, very strong memories of like sticking with that fantasy <laughs> genre for many years. Yes, fantasy, science fiction, yeah, it's a few different ones. Did you yeah. stray much from reading fantasy and sci-fi as a young reader? Uh, well, I mean, there's the Hardy Boys, which I read all of them until they started getting into the new ones. And three investigators. Um, I'm trying to think about the series at the moment. I'm sure there are lots of other, like thousands of books. Oh, like comics or whatever. Like comics, um, I wasn't so big into. I didn't yeah. read a lot of oh, comics. Like it was mostly text. Asterix and Oblix. Do you Asterix call that a comic? Yeah. All right. It was Tintin. Tintin. Tintin is my preferred. Yeah. Tintin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sort of stuff. Um, I'm trying to think. What about non-series stuff? I don't know. Usually because the theory stuck with me best. Yeah. <laughs> let, let me ask you a question. If we had a 10-year-old kid here now and they were they said to you, I really love fantasy. What do you think I should read? What would you be recommending? Redwall. Ah, cool. Straight off. Redwall. Yeah. Brilliant yeah. series. I'd probably actually cool. say, yeah, fantasy. Yeah, probably. Very, um, very nice sort I, of setting. I don't actually know. Like, the stuff that he wrote in the Redwall books, obviously they're animals, um, but... That's some really like um, tough topics that he deals with in Redwall, and I think he does it really well as well. Yeah, slavery, racism. Yeah, there's all of that in there, <laughs> and whether or not they get it at that age, maybe not. But it's still a great story. Yeah, and it's yeah. like when you go back and read it again, and like when you're older, like you just said earlier, like you know, I don't get it, but when you go back and read, it, it's like wow, that's a lot of stuff in there. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I think that's probably like the older, older, um, like young adult. You think? Yeah, I'd probably stick it in nine, ten. You think so? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I just reread uh, Ursula Le Guin's *A Wizard of Earthsea*, which is still magnificent. Yeah, um, and like is is a maybe a, like a little simplistic mm-hmm. in the kind of like the good evil thing is very very obvious. I yeah. mean, the, mm-hmm. the 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 wizard is basically battling his own shadow the entire the entire book. Mm. But um, oh, the writing is beautiful, and um, the the world is so accessible, and um. I, I 
sometimes when you're uh, talking about fantasy books to, to readers who are maybe not like super fantasy fans, they're like, oh, well, I just don't know if I like it. Yeah. And, yeah. and you try to like kind of sell them on, on the fantasy book and or like yeah. find a, an accessible way into that book. And um, I have found it with this book because the like one of the very first scenes in it is um, the wizard and he's like, he's kind of just learning that he kind of like is able to tap into this old magic and do spells. Um, and he learns, a, he sees a, a woman, a witch in the village doing a spell to like tame a goat. But he doesn't really understand what the spell is mm. and how it works yeah. because she's basically just like making the goat come to her and he does the spell. Um, but yeah. every single goat in the village comes to him and kind of like kind of pushes its snout yeah. right up against his uh, a knee until he, so he has like a hundred goats um, kind of following him wherever he goes Around the around the village, and he kind of can't move. And as soon as I tell that anecdote to like any kind of reader, they're like, "Oh, cool, that sounds really fun." <laughs> and that that's the kind of the, the, the brilliant way that that series starts is uh, is so accessible. And like, just telling that anecdote now, yeah. I know that you guys are going to like start rereading that book <laughs> again very soon. <laughs> Pretty much. It's not um, on the humor side, is it? I haven't read that. Book. No, no, it's not a, like an overly funny book, but like that is such a. And it's, it's it's more of yeah, the yeah, the stories that come out of it that sound funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, t- I'm I'm telling it in more of a kind of yeah, like fireside exactly. with my kind of scotch and cigar kind of way, <laughs> um, but it's it's much more pithy in the book. Yes. and um, yeah, and you're just like, ah, oh, this is this is going to be interesting. This is a cool book. Hmm. Um, final comments, Luke. Uh, another like mini topic, I suppose. I was wondering what you guys think of the. Um, the IQ, or not the IQ of readers, but the the books that kids are reading these days, and not just the books they're reading, but the books they're being given by people for their age group. Uh, do you think they're? What do you think they are compared to when we were reading books for our age, when we were seven and eight? Do you think they're more, more simplistic, or stronger, or deeper, or what? What do you think's changed with them? Or do you think anything's changed? Or yeah, if is it the same? <laughs> I think if anything, we've realized that kids don't need to be protected from stuff as much. Mm. Um, there's a, a middle grade novel which has been really super popular and has kind of been catapulted to kind of the the um, list of modern day classics in the past couple of years called Wonder by uh, an author called R.J. Palacio. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's an American author and this book is about a, um, uh, a kid called August who has um, severe deformities to his face. Um, and it... It's, uh, it's a book told from August's point of view, but also from his his friends and family's point of view, um, and even some of like the just the people that he kind of like meets in day to day life from school and the community around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's told from all their points of view, like mo- mainly from August's point of view, but also from the people around him. Um, and it it focuses. I mean, it's it, it it like it opens and August says, "Look, this is you know I'm not going to tell you the disease that I have." Um, but I, whatever you're like imagining my face looking like, I, I look worse yeah. than that. Um, and so you're like, it's a really compelling beginning yeah. and, and kids, kids love it. Yeah. And the, and the reason for that is because it taps into that like very kind of strong, um, feeling of empathy that you mm. have when you're a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah, you care. Yeah. yeah. You care a lot and you're like, Oh, you can really feel for this poor kid. And like, and it, August's voice is so good as well. And like the, the, the particularly good writing behind yeah. this is one of the reasons that kids can really empathize and, mm. and kind of like feel their way through this book um, and just be totally absorbed by it. And it, it kind of tells this kid's story and it's mostly a story about kindness and about how it kind of, he's very kind to people and how, mm. how, how kindness can be used as a power. And mm. I think that that's a topic that kids really um, 
really uh, find interesting and yep. and relevant to their lives and and um, aspire to as well. Yep. Um, and it's it's a book that uh, I think that maybe a few years ago we would have said, oh look, this is a pretty kind of serious medi- medical condition. I kind of really imagined how we would write a book about that, how we would even approach a book like that mm-hmm. and write it for a younger audience. But it works so well um, that it it really does go to show that you know there are. There are probably not many topics that um, aren't worthy of kind of being the subject of literature for young people. Fantastic. Would well, you find that that comes through more as just something that they, they read and absorb and then read something else? Or you think they'll actually apply it to their lives more as well? Because, yeah, I mean, I know when we were reading these books, I was feeling like I wanted to be adventurous and I didn't really have anywhere to be adventurous, so I just write. But, but, um, yeah, do you think there's a, there's application to it a lot, or is it just more that people are they can be uh, exposed to this stuff more? Oh, I think I think probably both. Mm. Yeah. So the reason I bring this up is because I've I just looked at um, a difference between a first grader's handwriting in was it nineteen fifty something? I can't remember. It was beautiful cursive writing like something that i could never <laughs> I know this ever aspire to <laughs> and then first graders now it's all over the as place. bad as mine right it's, yeah <laughs> so i mean that that section of education <clears throat> has certainly changed a lot so in books maybe it's getting better hopefully <laughs> yeah I, I would assume that literacy has kind of improved over the past 10 years mm. mostly due to the internet actually mm. yeah um, and because yep. it, because and maybe maybe bad handwriting is a side effect of that but probably um too much typing <laughs> yeah yeah well it's funny sometimes i walk into a classroom of kids to do a, a creative writing workshop with them and they'll they kind of expect them to yeah they have tablets. their laptops and ipads and i'm expecting kind of paper Notebooks. and pens oh they're all but no, thumbs no. <laughs> yeah they're, they're all thumbs writing into their notes yeah. app on their ipads um which is which is fine i mean there's nothing yeah. wrong with that i yeah. kind of have to like do a double take and i'm like oh no that's yeah, cool that's they've all got their ipads but it's okay because yeah, yeah. they're they're doing their work on their ipads <laughs> there's nothing to see here really um i I don't think that. I think that I think there's a difference between literacy and and literature, yep. um, and I think that kids almost shy away from like the like the stuff that's like obviously trying to be teaching literacy and mm-hmm. go towards literature. And I think that they're interested in that in terms of their own lives, mm-hmm. so that they can kind of apply things. And I'm sure that people kids have read Wonder and kind of thought, oh, you know. Maybe I could be a little kinder to this person in my life or that mm-hmm. person in their life. But I think they're also attracted to, um, I, like it's the, the old story, like, you know, any kind of media, does it influence or is it um, kind of, inf- yeah, is it influenced by society or is it um, influencing vice versa? Um, I, I think it's probably both. Interesting. Yeah. Final comments from you, Andrew? Uh, it's Well, maybe I should just quickly go through these other books that I brought in. Yeah. I, I brought in some books from home, which... Uh, yeah, from my children's literature selection, which I have far too many of for someone without any children. Uh, uh, Tom's Midnight Garden was another one that I brought in. I, I brought in just a, um, two or three books, which I thought um, wrote for their audiences really, really well. Mm-hmm. And I like Tom's Midnight Garden, which is written in like the 1950s and it's kind yep. of set in rural England, yep, yep. Um, which doesn't sound interesting at all. But <laughs> it opens up with um, Tom having just the most magnificent tantrum um, and is one of the best displays in literature that I've read of a 
child having and you know what they're like those kind of like we say tantrum now which is kind of condescending but yeah. at the time that kind of like that anger that as a kid you just don't know what to do about it so you just stamp your feet because there's like no yeah, other yeah, way yeah. to get it out of yeah, your body yeah. my mum used to tell me to like punch a pillow when that <laughs> happened I have like very clear memories of like going to my bedroom and punching my pillow on my bed <laughs> to get it all out of me yeah. Um, and there's like yeah Tom's Midnight Garden which is a beautiful atmospheric mysterious time slip novel kind of opens with that kind of like Tom being angry and not knowing to do what to do about it and growing up over the course of the book um, and kind of like writes that kind of angry child in a yeah, really beautiful yeah. way. Um, Holes by Louis Sacker um, is a, a really great book because it's it does that thing yeah. where uh, it kind of tells a really interesting mis- mystery story mm-hmm. and there are lizards that have yellow eyes that are deadly poisonous um, and these kids, uh, these uh, delinquent kids, are sent out into the desert, and their um, their penance is to dig holes in the desert, yeah. and no one really knows why they're being made to do this. Um, and it kind of sounds like a kind of action adventure mystery, um, but actually, it's a story about, I mean, those things as well. But it's also a story about um, about family and generational memory, and mm. kind of like karma, and like what happens in the past yeah. having an effect, even if you weren't there in the past. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, which which kind of does that kind of like kind of um, accessing a story or making a story really accessible to young readers, but telling like really um, highly conceptual things yeah. in the yeah. te- in in the process. And the other one that I brought in was Harriet the Spy, the kind of classic Harriet poking around nineteen um, seventies New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and I brought Harriet the Spy in just because it breaks every rule about children's <laughs> writing that we've probably mentioned tonight. Yeah. Like Harriet is a narc. She is. Yeah. She's probably one of the, the most likable, unlikable characters in, in, in literature. <laughs> um, she writes mean things about people. She yeah. doesn't really understand why they get upset when they all yeah. discover her diary and learn about all the things that she's been writing about them. Yeah. Um, and it, it like, it's kind of unforgiving. Like in the end, like there's no real kind of like moment where Harriet goes, Oh, okay. This is the lesson I've learned. You have to be very careful about people's feelings and what you write down. Yeah. She's like, but, like there's one there's one boy in her class and she's like she thinks that he's a terrible character and there's one line that she writes in her diary which is something along the lines of I really am glad that I'm not his mother because he is such an awful boy <laughs> and he reads this and then like gets around the school and everyone's like Harriet why would you ever write something that's so horrible and she's like but it's true and kind of you know and we you know yeah. we all go through that stuff when yeah. you're younger working out kind of what is and isn't kind of like acceptable to say about people to people what that etiquette is mm-hmm. um and and she doesn't she still doesn't really learn from it by the end of the book yeah. um and it's great because and i loved it as a kid because it, it kind of like harriet does what harriet wants and she's like well, look if i feel it i'm gonna write it down and she writes her diary and it's 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 brilliant because it breaks all those rules yeah. and it, it feels so true because of it yeah it's always good to bring in a book which breaks all the rules <laughs> right after you've like talked about those rules for 50 minutes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank Andrew for coming on. It was great to have you on and listening about this. And we talked a bit about this with Michael as well, but I think it's really nice to just have a bit more time and explore it fully. And I think you did a great job. So Thanks for having me. It's been, yeah. it's been great. It's been great. Um, Luke. Thanks again for coming on. It's always good to have you on um, as a guest host, as I said at the start. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and once again, apologies for the cut in the podcast. I usually don't like cutting things, but um, hey, you don't want spoilers in a movie, so I won't give you spoilers. Um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, the Morning Bell pod, um, well, The Morning Bell itself, the magazine, is open for submissions currently. Um, their website is themorningbell.net. 
uh, you go to the submissions uh, and just have a look at what they say. And if you want some internet points, then say you listen to the podcast as well. Um, <laughs> not saying it'll help. Um, but go ahead and submit, and I'm sure they'd like to see what you've got uh, for them. Um, Andrew, where can they find you on the social medias? Uh, I'm on I'm on most of the social medias. Probably best thing is just to go to the website, which is mrandrewmcdonald.com. McDonald's spelt with a MCD, as in the uh, the restaurant chain. What a terrible way to end. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Mc, <laughs> McDonald MC, as in the children's author. <laughs> as in the food franchise. Oh, goodness. Um, Luke, where can they find you? What have you got coming up for us? Uh, TheSoulshardChronicles.com. Currently have a review where somebody told me that I should go find Gandhi. So come find me and... <laughs> Teach me something on my reviews, um, and the soul at sorry, uh, what is it? Hashtag? What do you use on Twitter? Oh, I think it's hashtag at, at the soul shard or something at, like that. At the soul shard, that's <laughs> right. Find me there. At. If you, want, you use hashtags to be cool, you can find me at um, thepenofjoel.com on Twitter at thepenofjoel, and that's it. We're done. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to see you in. A week and a bit. When is the next podcast, Luke? That's two weeks. Two weeks. Usually. The date. Well, the 13th, I believe. 13th. All it's right. a good day, isn't it? Like yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's a really good day. All right. Well, we're out. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again. <laughs>